All right, John chapter 16, John chapter 16, and we're going to be picking it up uh, right here in verse 5 and following, and if you have been with us all along, you know that we are in the upper room discourse. Jesus is on the home stretch of his life. He's given a good bit of counsel and comfort to his disciples. Last week, he also said some pretty difficult things, warned them of the persecution that is to come and so on. And then today, he picks up pretty much right where he left off. And quite frankly, this text gets off to a pretty hot start. Uh, and then from there, he unfolds multiple truths about the Holy Spirit and the role he would play for these disciples and for us, uh, and to some degree, for the world. Let's take a look at it right here. Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. And these things, of course, is all that he's been getting into, particularly that about the persecution last week, but also the extension of the nature of his departure, what he is going to have them do after, that they, after he returns to heaven, so on and so forth. And he's saying, I didn't get into all that because I didn't need to just yet. It wasn't time for that because I was here physically with you. But now that I am departing, it is time to tell you more than I have said. But what's interesting here, look at verse 5. Jesus says, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? And there's a couple of things going on with that verse. The first one is this refrain that Jesus has been singing for many, many chapters now of his inextricable link between himself and the Father, his connection to ultimate divine authority. He didn't just show up to say things and do things of his own accord. He was and is a messenger of God. He was God, and he's pointing, them out, uh, pointing that out to them again, that he's going to be with his Father. But in so doing, he also offers what many believe, and I would agree, is somewhat of a light rebuke here. Look, look at it again. It says, and none of you asks me, where are you going? And one thing that I think is very interesting here is how Jesus does this amazing balancing act of both caring for his disciples and gently confronting his disciples. There's both care and confrontation in what he's saying here. Uh, one commentator points it out kind of like this, that he was not discounting the grief that they would experience. In fact, we'll see him directly address it in the next verse, in verse 6. But he is also pointing out, <clears throat> hey, listen, everything that you guys are going through here, it's important, it's heavy, but let's keep our eye on the ultimate ball here. I'm co I've come to secure redemption for all of God's people to open a path of life here and you guys are kind of fixated on how it affects you and how it's going to upset your apple cart and so on and so forth. So it's not that the grief is not real. It's not that things are like that aren't important. But there's an even larger E on the proverbial eye chart. And so I need to lift your eyes from yourself to the ultimate kingdom and the ultimate mission and the ultimate sense of God's glory. And I think that there's clearly a word for us in that as well. Because I know myself, and I know all of you, and it is very easy for us to fall into this same kind of predicament when something bad happens in our lives that we immediately become almost exclusively inwardly focused. 
Now, does that mean we ignore self-care and all that? Of course not. Of course not. But if we only think about ourselves and lose complete touch with the rest of our family, with the rest of the world, with the rest of the glory of God and the kingdom of God advancing, then we also would be well served to hear this light rebuke that Jesus has to offer. So it's not that it's not important. It's just not the only thing of importance. One commentator said this almost in jest. It would almost be like going to the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls and standing there and taking pictures of yourself and never even noticing the glory that was on display around you. I think that's a pretty good illustration of that. But let's talk here a little bit more about the fact that Jesus does care for them in their grief. Look at verse 6. It says, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So he's no dummy. He is reading the room. And in the midst of that, he says, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, this is very much on the heels of what he said that we looked at two weeks ago, three weeks ago, in chapter 14, where he talked at length about the Holy Spirit and how it's actually a good thing that he's returning to heaven. And one of the things that I shared with you there is this great, great, great quote, there we go, from a guy named J.D. Greer that describes the situation that Jesus is laying forth here. That basically, the Holy Spirit within you is better than the Jesus beside you. Now, I don't mean that in a, a theological sense, but what Jesus is saying to them is, look, I'm here, I'm with you, but I'm limited to one physical body in the current situation. And once I go back to heaven, <coughs> the Holy Spirit is going to come, and he's going to be portable. And he's going to go wherever you go. He's going to move in, and if you belong to Jesus, he's never going to move out. And he's going to be there to help you and guide you, and then we're going to talk more about what he is going to do in just a moment. But he's saying, it is to your advantage that I go back to heaven because the empowerment that is coming, he's just like me, except he's going to go with you wherever you go. And that is to their and to our advantage. But let's also think about this, the context in which this comfort and counsel is offered. It is within the context of mission. Remember? Back in verse 5, the reason he had to lightly rebuke them is because the full focus was on them and how it affected them. And he lifts their eyes. And now he's saying this about the Holy Spirit, and he is reminding them, listen, I'm going to call you to do some things that are going to be absolutely impossible apart from the Spirit at work within you. And then on top of that, the world is going to hate you sometimes. They're not going to want to hear what you have to say. And you're going to need this encouragement from within. And it is to your advantage that I'm sending him. But it is comfort in the context of mission. I like what another commentator had to say about this. He said, the Holy Spirit wasn't sent to uh, uh, assure us of lives of comfort and ease. The Spirit doesn't live within us so that we can rest comfortably in our easy chairs doing nothing for the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit comes to us to empower us for a mission that cannot be accomplished apart from his supernatural help. And then Jesus elaborates on his role in the following verses. So let's remember that. The comfort that the Spirit offers is always within 
the context of mission. Now, speaking of which, he's going to say several things here, verses 8 and following, that the Holy Spirit does and will do that will empower their mission. Look at it. It says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. They be in the world, of course. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So principally speaking, what Jesus is saying is that part of the Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. A couple of textual things to note here. Verse 8, the word translated convict means to cross-examine with the purpose of convincing or refuting an opponent. And the Greek word that is used here is followed by a preposition, so it means that this verb is to govern all these things. So that the spirit, the, the big idea here is he convicts, and then what does he convict the world of? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. I think the first one is pretty easy to understand. <clears throat> Second one is a bit more debated. But what does it mean that he convicts the world of sin? Well, part of that is that he shows the world, us, we know this, we all came out of the world. He shows us that we're sinners. Every single one of us in this room, when you became a Christian, it was because someone loved you enough to preach the gospel to you. Maybe it was a person like me in a setting like this, or maybe it was a parent or a friend sitting across from you at the kitchen table. Somewhere along the way, the word went out, and the Spirit unlocked your heart so that you were convicted of your sin, and you embraced the truth. That's part of the calculus of what happened there when you became a Christian. And again, the, the comfort in the context of mission here is disciples, you're going to be up, you're going to be preaching, and you need to know that the Spirit is going to be with you when you're preaching, and He's going to bring conviction on some of those people, and some of those people are going to turn from sin and trust in Christ. Great example of that. Acts chapter 2, uh, pre uh, Peter preached a sermon, and then at the end of that sermon, this is verses 36 and 37, he said, Let all the house of Israel know that for certain God has made him both Lord and Christ, the Jesus whom you crucified. So he is cutting the mustard there, shucking the corn, as my friends used to say in seminary. And he said, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and Peter, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So think about that. <clears throat> He's up there preaching this sermon, one that many today would consider a hellfire and brimstone kind of message, and their response is, holy cow, what do we do in response to this? That's not Peter's oratorical skills. That is the convicting work of the Holy Spirit that convicted them of their sin. And so as we go out and we proclaim the gospel, we are not simply trying to persuade people, though we should. We are engaging in a spiritual battle that has ultimately already been won by Christ, but we are trusting that the Spirit of God is going to work in concert with the Word of God to unlock people's hearts and bring them to faith. He convicts the world of sin. That's what he's saying here. And think about how comforting that would have been to them. They're sitting there. They're grieving. They know they've been commissioned to preach. 
On top of that, they know they're going to take some serious heat for it. And Jesus is saying, but you're not going to be alone. And that spirit is going to convict of sin. Now, beyond that, <coughs> convicting uh, of the world of righteousness. Now, this one uh, is a little more tricky, but I'll give you my best stab at it. Most people to think to some degree that they are righteous. Most of the people that I've talked to and really kind of got into, like if they believe in some kind of heaven and hell, it basically goes like this. The people in hell are like Hitler and ISIS-type folks and, and people that do that kind of stuff, but generally everybody else is pretty good, pretty righteous. And the problem with that is that's not anywhere in the Bible. We like to think in terms of, well, there's good people and bad people, but this is the way the Bible talks. There's all bad people and one good person. Now, you think that's not popular in our culture? That is not popular in our culture. But that is what Christians have believed for 2,000 plus years. There's all of us are sinners except for the Savior that was sinless that came to save us. <coughs> so if anyone is going to become a Christian, the Holy Spirit has got to convict us and our hearers of righteousness, in this case, the lack thereof, so that we would see, oh my gosh, this is a problem. This is a spiritual disaster. I cannot save myself. There must be someone who can help me. Who is that? It's Jesus. Okay, I want that. So they're convicted of sin, and they're convicted of righteousness and unrighteousness. Now, there are probably some other interpretations of that. But even, I'll be honest, if I'm wrong about that's not what he's saying here, that's clearly taught all over the Bible. So we're on good exegetical ground for that. But it's right in line also <coughs> with what Paul says in Philippians 3.9 3, when he says, Being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's the same thing that Luther talked about when he said there is an, an alien righteousness. And he's not talking about Roswell and little green men and so on. He's talking about a righteousness that is beyond us, that is outside of us, that you can't muscle yourself up into it. It's got to come from somewhere else. And when the Spirit unlocks your heart and you lay hold of Jesus, you get that righteousness counted on your account even though you are unrighteous. The great exchange of the gospel. And the Spirit has got to do that work and convict us of that. And then finally, what's the other thing here? And of judgment. Now this one, to be honest, I think this one's even more slippery than what I just talked about there. <coughs> because it could be, uh, what kind of judgment? Is it the kind of judgment where they had judged Jesus wrongly? Not the disciples, but the world. We saw that back in chapter 7, that... They decided Jesus was a false teacher and a heretic and all that. Or is, is he talking about they have to be shown that, that that's wrong? Well, that's true. Or is it that there is going to be a judgment someday? People don't believe that either. It could, I think it could be either of those. But one thing is for sure is that he ties the proper understanding of judgment to the fact that Satan, that's the ruler of this world, 
is judged. And I think that verb tense there is interesting because, again, the battle, the victory, the ultimate war, has already been won. Satan is defeated. And all the nonsense that we are dealing with today is basically the mop-up effort until Jesus comes and then fully and finally cleans it all up, and then Satan is, is banished forever. But he is judged. And I think what he's doing here, again, remember the context. The context is comfort, is he is telling these disciples, verse 5, that are fixated on themselves, lift your eyes. Verse 6, I know you're sad, but listen, there's good news. Verse 7, the Holy Spirit is coming to help you. Verse 8, 9, 10, and now 11, here's what he's going to do in response to your preaching and being with you and so on and so forth. Take heart, disciples. That's what he's saying. So let's make some application of this. I think first and foremost, if you are here and you are weighed down tonight, you need to be reminded that the Holy Spirit is with you and for you and resides in you if your faith is in Jesus tonight. It doesn't matter if you feel alone, you are not alone. And this is kind of one of those things where dealing with our feelings is always tricky because we, they're real. You, you can't explain them away. They're real. But we got to get up above them and look at the truth. And any time we feel alone, if we are in Christ, we need to tell the truth to that and say, hey, yes, I may need to reach out. I may need to get some more community around me. But at the end of the day, the, the, the Holy Spirit that was with these disciples is with me. So preach that truth to your loneliness tonight. Second thing I would say, take a little further step out here. If you hear what we're talking about tonight, about conviction and about righteousness and about judgment, and that strikes a chord with you and you say, gosh, I feel kind of convicted about my sin. And my plan up to this point has basically been to just try to deal with it myself, to try to be really good in life and, and maybe even be kind of religious and hope that God grades on a curve. And one day when I stand before him, in judgment, that maybe I'll do it, we'll, we'll have done enough good that that will weigh out over my bad and he'll let me into heaven. If that's your plan for eternity tonight, friend, you need to abandon that self-salvation project and you need to let Jesus save you. And if you feel that in your heart, that is the Holy Spirit that is talking to you from this passage. And you need to turn from your sin and run to Jesus, and he will take you. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. He will embrace you. Turn to Jesus. And finally, let me say this. For those of us who've already turned to Christ, the Holy Spirit could be doing his convicting work, <coughs> not in a saving way, but in a sanctifying way tonight. And if you got something cooking in the background, maybe you haven't dealt with that with the Lord yet, friend, do not delay you deal with that tonight. The Lord is standing on, to use the metaphor here, the proverbial front porch with the porch light on, waving you home. He's saying, don't be fooling around down there at the end of the road with all that stuff that was consistent with who you used to be. You come sit on this porch with me. 
welcome home, son or daughter. The Holy Spirit's probably saying that to some of us tonight. But we need to know that Jesus offers this comfort in the context of mission, and he's helping them, and he's helping us. Now, there's a little bit more here as well. <laughs> Verses uh, 12 and following. I like, uh, uh, Jesus was a good preacher. I love, I love statements like this. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, <coughs> for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said he will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. So in essence, what he's saying here is that the Holy Spirit will also guide Jesus' disciples into all truth and more. Let's talk about that a little bit. This one is also somewhat debated. Uh, again, it's kind of one of those things, if, if we end up choosing the wrong exegetical path here, it's somewhere else in the Bible, so this, we're not on dangerous footing here. But, but really, the, the, the two camps that kind of come out with it here is, is he talking specifically about how he's going to bring back to remembrance for these disciples all of his things so that they can write scripture or is it that plus some more and i think it's probably that plus some more and here's what i mean that these guys one of the things that i don't know if they had this on their mind yet maybe not but it, it's very clear that jesus is saying i'm going back and you got plenty of work to do and then he obviously is going to use them to write the scriptures from a human end of things. And so he's giving them, again, this comfort in the context of mission. I'm going to use you to write the scriptures, and the Holy Spirit is going to guide you into that truth. So be confident in that. Now, I think beyond that, it is pretty obvious that the Holy Spirit guides us in life. Now, are there some Christians that get way out too far on that? You better believe it. We talked about that a few weeks ago, chapter 14. But those of us that are very serious champions of the scriptures do not need to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, oh, those people that talk about the Holy Spirit, they're all wingnuts and crackpots, right? That's, that's a false dichotomy, and it's unhelpful. But what we do need to know is that the Holy Spirit always works in concert with Holy Scripture. The Holy Spirit is always operating in concert with Holy Scripture. And so practically, that means if somebody comes along and says, the Holy Spirit told me this, and it violates some clear verse in the Bible or some clear principle in the Bible, sorry, thanks for playing, but that's not the Holy Spirit that's telling you that. I don't know what it is. could have been the pizza you had for dinner, but, it, but it's not the Holy Spirit saying that. But again, just because there's excess and trouble and shenanigans over here doesn't mean that the Spirit is not going to lead and guide us. One interesting exegetical point here, I'm, I'm still kind of chewing on exactly what I want to make of this, but I think it's, I think it's fascinating uh, Greek here, is that the word that is used here for guide 
Apparently, the only other time that it is used, in John's writing at least, is over in Revelation 7, when it says that the Lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them, and he will guide them to springs of waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so the observation there is, the same spirit that is going to guide these disciples and these disciples into all truth is also guiding them to ultimate rest and ultimate refreshment in the end. Friends, isn't that a good, inviting picture of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ and the, the type of life that he offers us into? So much bigger than do this, don't do that. Don't hang out with those people. Only hang out with those people. So much bigger than, than simply rules. But a vibrant relationship that begins now and goes on forever. And then you think about what else we know, and, and we did talk a lot about this in, in, in chapter 14, about the Holy Spirit's illuminating work when it comes to the Bible. The reason we can understand Scripture isn't just because there are great resources out there, which there are. I spend time in them every week. It is because the Holy Spirit shines the spotlight in our darkened hearts and shines the spotlight on the Lord Jesus. That's how we can know. That's how we can see. And what a comfort that would have been to these people, because again, even if they didn't appreciate it right then, how meaningful would it have been after basically the next day, which we'll start getting into that in the coming weeks, they're going to watch Jesus murdered right in front of them. How comforting will it be to them to know that in his absence, they will have his presence through the Spirit and he is not only going to bring back to mind the things that he taught them, but he's going to guide them so that they can guide others. You know, one of my greatest comforts as a pastor is that the preaching and teaching ministry does not rest entirely upon me. I mean that in a practical sense, that we have multiple men who can teach the Word. But in this sense, what I mean is... The Holy Spirit exists in every person in this room that knows Jesus, and he will help you understand this word. And part of the reason why we teach the way we do is because I hope the method itself teaches you how to do it at home. He just goes through the verses every week and talks a lot about the context. The, the Spirit helps us understand the book together. He guides us into all truth. But let me go a step further than that and also say he guides us relationally. Now, this is where it gets a little more murky and some people are more comfortable with this and less than others, and I totally understand that. Totally understand it. But one thing I would encourage you to do is whenever you've got a decision to make, pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to lead and to guide you. Now, if he leads you apart from the Bible, it's not, it's not the Holy Spirit. That's something you hate. But you have this resource, this person, this helper available to you. Don't 
try to live without him. I'm going to date myself here, but when I was growing up, American Express had this card commercial, and they said, don't leave home without it. That was their shtick back then. Christian, you are not leaving without the Holy Spirit. Don't live without him. Ask for his help. Ask for his help in your parenting. Ask for his help in your finances, in your relationships, in your workplace. Everywhere that you need help, ask for his help. He will guide you into all truth. And then on top of that, look, look back at what it says here about the work of the Spirit. That he's not going to speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. So again, now, now we have almost this Trinitarian connection that we see here. Jesus has made this link to the Father a thousand times, and now he's talking about the, the, the Spirit, the third member of the Trinity working here. And he will declare to you the things that will to come. And then look again here, because this is, this is probably one of the key statements of what the Holy Spirit's purpose is in this world now that Jesus is in heaven. Verse 14, he will glorify me. He does other things, but that's his primary gig, to point to Jesus, to cause us to believe how great Jesus is, to illuminate for us the word of God so that we can talk about Jesus. That's what he does. He glorifies him. And then I love this, just this sweet connection here. Taking what is mine and declaring it to you. Isn't that a great picture of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, particularly even in preaching the word? Lord, take what is yours and help me declare it. Every parent in this room ought to pray, Lord, by your spirit, through your word, do your thing. Help me declare what is yours to these precious children, to my brothers and sisters, to the people in my community group, so on and so forth. That's what the spirit does. He takes what is Jesus's, and then he declares it to disciples. Let me give you two more little insights here and then i want to make some application one commentator also pointed out that this this expression all truth it does not mean that we will know every single true thing in the world right so you don't become a christian and then suddenly start teaching like molecular physics uh down at vanderbilt that that's kind of a separate thing so all truth doesn't mean all the truth in the world but what it does mean, and I love this, it could also be translated all the truth. It connotes an increasing liberation of the truth that sets us, makes us free. So here's one way to think about that. The more in tune we are with the Holy Spirit as he illuminates the book to us, the more free we become in life. I'm going to tell you a funny story here. I was actually watching. It's funny to me. You may think it's ridiculous. But I was watching this documentary uh, about this rock band, actually. And they were so dysfunctional that they had to bring in, like, this guy who was a counselor and, like, a high-end fancy coach 
and he was with them for months as they were trying to put themselves back together. This guy went to rehab. I mean, this was like a rock band kind of thing, right? And they would sit around the table and talk about their problems, and they talk about all this stuff. And actually, some of the stuff they said and some of the things they did were actually very helpful. But at the end of the day, there was this hollowness to it. Because the most important part of really getting free in life was missing. The gospel wasn't there. And the best this guy could offer them was meditation techniques to help them get into the zone so they could hit the drums harder and they could vibe better together. And listen, I, I love even rock music, okay, so confession there. But the, the, at the end of the day, it was still so sad because they were talking about as that it was the most free they'd ever felt. But the reality is every single one of those guys, at least at that point, were completely enslaved to their sin. So the freedom that they were talking about wasn't true freedom at all. And what Jesus offers us here is the real thing. And the more we learn the truth and the more the Spirit guides us into the truth, the freer we become. So let me ask you this question. Where do you need to become more free in your life? The Spirit wants to take you there through the word for the glory of Jesus. And let me give you some good news as we close out here. He's available to us. And he's available to us right now. This is not like we got to go home and, you know, pick up the house because the company's coming. No, no, no. He knows about the mess. He's with you right now in the mess. So wherever you need the freedom, let's go to him now and ask. Wherever you need the comfort, let's go to him now and ask. Wherever you need the conviction and the slight rebuke of verse 5, let's receive it without any posturing. Because the Holy Spirit is shining the spotlight on Jesus for us tonight. And we need to get in on it. We need to confess our sins for some of us who are here, if you don't know Christ, you need to be saved. Some of us need to come and sit on that proverbial porch that I was talking about. But we need to step into the increasing liberation of this truth that makes us free. The question is, is will we? Will we? So here's how I want to close out tonight. I want to ask everybody just to bow your head and let's just get still for a minute. Molly's going to come and play play for us. And I want us to take just a couple of minutes, just in the quietness of the moment, just to pray. And then I'll lead us. But this is our time to do business with God. To confess our sins to embrace his comfort, to ask for help, to get back on mission, whatever it is tonight. 
Let's do business with God. Lord, we are thankful to have been and to be in your presence. And Lord, we want to praise you because you are like no one else. How you can simultaneously gently rebuke and comfort us at the same time. And remind us that you have given us the Spirit who does all these wonderful and unique things and that you're with us right in the middle of whatever we got going on. Lord, only you can pull that off. So Lord, I wanna pray for those tonight who don't yet know you in a saving way that they would have confidence and courage to step across the line of faith tonight. That they would admit that they're sinners, that they would believe in the full and finished work of Jesus on their behalf, and that they would confess their sins and commit their life to Jesus. Lord, I pray that that, that would happen. And friends, if you're here tonight and that is what is stirring in your heart, do that. Admit, believe, confess, and commit. And in just a bit, when the rest of us take communion, come talk to me in the back and let's talk about it. Lord, for those of us who've already made that turn, I pray that there would be a continued sense of conviction of sin and also comfort. Lord, I pray that when we take communion, that you would remind us of both of those things, the conviction and the comfort, and may we add to it a sense of celebration, the greatness of who you are and what you've done represented in these elements. And Lord, finally, we just want to pray that the conversation that kind of got started tonight through this passage is going to be different for all of us how you are applying this word to our hearts. I pray that it would continue and bear much fruit in community group and thrive groups and so on. So Lord, we thank you for this time that we have and will have. We pray that it